Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. Jesus made his first triumphal entry in the Gospels, right? He marched through that eastern gate in Jerusalem. And what's beautiful is that he will one day march again in that eastern gate. The first time he did it as a meek lamb marching to his death. But this time he will come as a roaring lion marching towards our victory. He's marching towards a victory. He's going to march towards that eastern gate. And uh, I think it's really funny. (laughs) Um, In the Middle Ages, Muslim conquerors actually built up a concrete wall on that eastern gate in hopes, listen to this, in hopes of keeping the Jewish Messiah out from ever returning. And it's kind of funny because unbelievers sometimes have more faith in the coming of Jesus and expectancy than us believers sometimes. Not only that, but I'm sure the one who splits the sky who speaks galaxies into existence, who has conquered death, hell, and the grave. I'm sure the one who handles all that can also handle a little bit of concrete, right? He will bust through that concrete gate and come and sit on his throne. And we will reign with him forever and ever. Let's just give him a shout. We will be marching in victory. So today, I'm going to be talking where Pastor David left off. Pastor David talked about Revelation chapter 19, about the beast. The beast is taken care of, thrown away. All the wicked rulers of the earth are taken care of. But now today, we're going to be talking about the final casting away of the devil himself. And I think it's so sobering that there is a day marked in the calendar of eternity where evil itself will be eliminated from the face of all existence and will be cast away into the lake of fire forever and ever. Come on. Amen. It's a real day. It's a real day coming. So David, Pastor David, last week, um, the scriptures had a lot of intensity, a lot of blood, a lot of gore, and today won't be much better, but we will end on a high note today where Jesus comes and reigns. So it, it, it might get a little intense for a little bit. I just want to tell you, prepare, buckle your seatbelts, but we're going to end on a high note because Jesus wins in the end. Amen. Amen. So I am going to be bringing up the subject of Satan a lot today, just because it's, this, today's teaching is about his casting away. I never, in my years preaching, I've only been preaching a few years, but I've never preached about the devil. I never like to bring his subject up because that's what he wants. He wants attention. But the only reason I would bring him up is to place him right back down where he belongs. And so that's what today's teaching is going to be about. If I were to ask you, where did evil originate? We would most likely agree, we would say the Garden of Eden. But that is not where evil originated. That's where man really birthed evil on the earth. But evil originated in the throne room of heaven with an angel named Lucifer. And so we're going to talk about how did the snake get into the garden in the first place? 
How did we get into this mess in the first place? How did the devil get cast out of heaven? Because in order to know the final victory, it's important we go back and see what made him fall from heaven in the first place. So a lot of this is the theme of spiritual warfare. It feels like a theme today is spiritual warfare. The nations are constantly in spiritual warfare, but how many of you know the last two years it felt like spiritual warfare has gone to a whole nother level in the nations and with us individual? How many of you can say that these last two years you've experienced a form of spiritual warfare you've never experienced your entire life? Keep your hand up. Look at all this. Crazy. So the hour we're living in is a time in history. There are different times in spiritual history where there's a heightened level of warfare. And we talked about in the throne room of God, every time there was something happening in heaven, it would directly manifest itself on the earth. Anytime a new song or war broke out in heaven, it would directly manifest itself into something happening on the earth. So I want to suggest there is a lot of activity happening in heaven right now. There is a lot of throne room activity right now that we can rejoice in, but in this hour, it is so easy to get caught up in the turbulence of this spiritual warfare happening all over the world. And more than ever, we need to behold King Jesus, as Pastor John was saying, we need to see him rightly more than ever. The moment that we separate the person of Jesus from anything in our lives, especially ministry, it becomes exhausting. Not only does it become exhausting, but it becomes idolatry. And so I'm seeing more and more Jesus illuminating himself as the forefront. He is the forefront. It's about him. The the scriptures speak of him. Every scripture, Jonah being swallowed up in the belly of the well for three days speaks of Jesus being swallowed up by the belly of death for three days, but death could not contain him, so death spit him out just like the whale spit Jonah out. Moses, speaking to the burning bush, that bush was an actual, uh, I forget the exact name, but it had thorns all over this burning bush that spoke to Moses in the wilderness. Speaking of Jesus, who would hang on a tree, wear a crown of thorns, just like that burning bush, and would burn for us as he eliminates death, hell, and the grave. These scriptures speak of Jesus. It's about Jesus. So I said it back in January, but I've never seen a time in my life where it's been easier to be offended. I haven't seen a time in my life where it's been easier to partner with fear. Offense will always seek to attract whatever information is needed to legitimize its existence. Same thing with fear. Fear will always attract whatever information is needed to legitimize its existence. I want to propose that the spirit realm moves at the speed of our attention and our speech. What is speech and attention? That is worship. I look at Jesus and I tell him who he is. So that's where we're fighting from. So I want to touch briefly on spiritual warfare before we jump into this, but Psalms 103, do we have that scripture? It says this, 
Praise the Lord, my soul, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. You can keep going. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all of your diseases and heals all your diseases. I've messed that up, but keep going. I'm looking for one specific. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Keep going. Who satisfies your desire with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. If the Lord has made known his ways to Moses in a, in a turbulent season, how much more will he make known his ways to us in this season? Wow. So I don't know the exact verse, but there's a verse in here where it says, angels give heed to the word of the Lord. In other words, this is just my own thought, but I believe words that originate from the throne room of God, whether it's words or promises or prophetic words spoken over our lives, I just see these words having a fragrance or a color on it that is recognizable for angels. So in spiritual warfare, when we speak and declare and release the word and prophetic promises over our lives, we are releasing a fragrance and a scent that angels recognize and say, I recognize that from the throne room. Let's act on it. I recognize it. Let's act. Angels give heed to the word of the Lord. That's why... I believe in my life when I've gone through spiritual warfare, the strongest form of spiritual warfare is not only worship, but it's releasing prophetic words over our lives. Many times we get a prophetic word or a promise and we just put it on a spiritual trophy shelf and look at it and applaud it and kind of tell everybody, hey, I got this prophetic word, I'm gonna do this. And that's amazing. But first Timothy says, Paul says to Timothy, use your prophetic words as a weapon two-wage warfare. So if I'm going through spiritual warfare, I take, I take my word and I pray it out loud. I release it because angels recognize that scent and say, hey, this is not just a trophy on a shelf. This is ammunition. Let's act on it. That's spiritual warfare. One of the greatest weapons we have against the demonic is the power of ignore. <laughs> How many of you heard of Smith Wigglesworth? I'm going to take a drink really quick. Smith Wilgersworth, incredible man of God, mighty and miracles. And one night he was sleeping and I don't know who it was, but it was a devil or a demon. It might have been the devil appeared to him and woke him up in the middle of the night. And what he did was he woke up, he looked directly at it and he said, oh, it's just you. And then he went back to bed. I want to get there in, that, in my faith. How many of you know, if that happened to me, I might have been shaking as I was saying that. But that is the power of ignore. The power of ignore. Oh, it's just you. You know, one of my favorite scriptures on spiritual warfare is when Paul writes in Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God, put on the helmet of salvation. You guys know this. When I was a kid, I went to family Christian stores and my mom actually bought me the real uh, uniform to put on the, bless, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the spirit. They had an actual outfit for that. But it's funny that Paul tells us to put on an armor, yet he never tells us we're gonna go out and fight. What does he tell us? Put on the armor and stand. Stand, stand, stand. 
Standing is a form of the word perseverance. Perseverance is a fruit of the Spirit. How many of you know the devil does not have the fruits of the Spirit, therefore he does not have perseverance? So all we have to do is stay in the ring (laughs) because he doesn't have perseverance. He can't last as long as us. We have the fruit of the Spirit, which is perseverance. He's already lost. Perseverance. Joseph Garlington said, if you're walking through hell, just keep going. (laughs) You'll reach heaven soon enough. Psalms 23, King David didn't say, yea, though I lay down in the valley of shadows. He said, yea, though I walk through the valley of shadows. Don't lay down in the valley of shadows and make camp there. It's normal to have a season of spiritual warfare, but it's not normal to make that season home and camp out there. It's normal to walk through. It's not normal to have a lifetime of it. If I'm having a lifetime of spiritual warfare, that's not the devil's fault. That's my fault. <laughs> I need to fix something that I'm doing here. Come on, preach it, man. Come on. Perseverance. So in essence, spiritual warfare comes down to this one thing. What will you put your affection on? What will you put your gaze on? So I'm going to talk about three different themes today in Scripture. It might take me a little bit to get to Revelation. We will get there in the end. But I'm going to talk about the grand casting away of evil itself. Number one, the first thing I want to talk about is the first fall of Satan, how he fell. Number two, I'm going to talk about how Jesus won on earth and shows us how we win. And number three, how we win in the end. Because I have good news. History is not winding down to a terrible conclusion, but it's winding down to a glorious celebration. This is our hope. This is our beautiful, blessed hope. So number one, the first fall. So I, I mentioned before, if I were to ask you, how did evil begin? Many would say it's the garden, but really evil began in the throne room. So I want to take a step back. Let's go ahead and turn to Isaiah Chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. And we're going to start here in verse 3. When the Lord gives you rest from your pain, torment, and the hard labor you you were forced to do, you will sing this song of contempt. So what Isaiah is doing here. He's seeing into the future, into the book of Revelation of what John's seeing. He's seeing that day that we will rule and reign in the day where Satan will be cast out forever. So he's prophesying the exact same thing John is prophesying. He's saying, on that day, evil is cast out. This is the song of rejoicing. We will all sing about the king of Babylon. The king of Babylon is the devil. It it can mean the king Nebuchadnezzar, but in a more broader sense, this means the devil, the king of Babylon. Where does Babylon come from? The word Babel, the tower that they tried to build, man trying to make a me-centered gospel building on themselves. This is where that word Babylon comes from. And it originated, not on earth, but originated from Lucifer. This is what you'll say. How the oppressor has quieted down. The accuser that accuses us and taunts us will not have a voice anymore. And how the raging has become quiet. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked. The scepter of the rulers, 
It struck the peoples in anger with unceasing blows. It subdued the nations in rage or aggression. Are the nations in aggression right now? Yeah. You bet they are. With relentless persecution, all the earth is calm and at rest. I'm going to drop down to verse 12. Shining morning star. Shining morning star is the literal definition of the name Lucifer. Lucifer means shining morning star. So now, instead of seeing ahead, he's prophesying about what had happened in the throne room. How did he fall? So he's saying, shining morning star, Lucifer, how you have fallen from the heavens, you destroyer of nations, you have been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, now, Pay close attention here because the language I'm about to say right now is the epitome of the language of the devil himself, the language of what got Lucifer cast out. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will set on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. Do you hear a pattern here? I will make myself like the most high. But you will be brought down to Sheol into the deepest regions of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you. They will look closely at you and say, is this the man who caused the earth to tremble who shook the kingdoms in other words on that day we'll look at him and say it was you this whole time that's all it was it was you yeah. come on come on wow it was you if we will not be that impressed with the devil on that side of eternity why not live that impressed on this side of eternity it's just you Oh, it was you. A pattern of words. I, me, myself. True faith is not denying that darkness exists. It's just denying darkness a place of influence. Is this the one who made the nations tremble? So, king of Babylon, I... I briefly talked about that a moment ago, but Babylon, like I said, comes from the word Babel. Genesis 11 is when man decided, they said, let us make a name for ourselves. Does this language sound very familiar? The language of the devil, I will, me, the language of Babel, let us for ourselves build a tower and compare those two to the language of Jesus, where instead of saying my kingdom, my kingdom, he said, my father, my father, my father. The heartbeat of darkness is pride. The heartbeat of Jesus is humility. That's the difference. So you will also discover very quickly the language of Babylon is a me-centered, counterfeit gospel. It's a counterfeit, me-centered gospel that is poking its head in culture today. Man building kingdoms for man. It's counterfeit. The devil, how many of you know the devil cannot create? He does not have it in his nature to create. 
God can create. He is the one who can create. And he empowered us to create through our words. However, the devil does not have that power to create. He can only counterfeit the original. He can only make counterfeit of the original and offer the world a counterfeit gospel. When FBI agents are studying how to recognize counterfeit dollar bills, guess what? They don't, they don't study the counterfeit. They meticulously study the original, every single detail, so that the moment a counterfeit comes across their radar, they immediately know that does not look like the original. And many times in spiritual warfare, we're tempted to focus so much on the counterfeit of what's being handed to us, the counterfeit, 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 when if we just really locked onto the truth, to the original, what has God said, then the moment a counterfeit comes, it's like, eh, that's... That doesn't belong here. <laughs> it's counterfeit. God, the Lord, will not present to Jesus a bride that is filled with counterfeit mixture. He is purifying his bride and making her beautiful. He's removing that earthly mixture from the bride. This uh, <laughs> is sobering to me as a leader hearing this, because I'm sobered to the reality that to partner with darkness, I don't necessarily have to say a song with the devil's name in it. I just have to take ministry and make it about me and build it on me. But the thing is, if it is built on me, it will last as long as me or even shorter. I have never, in my time of ministry, I've never felt pressed from the Lord to build something that is big, but I have felt pressed to build something that is pure. Babel was really big. It was a really big tower, but was it pure? It was really big. It's easy to build something big. I just have to build it on me, but to build something pure, it has to be built on nothing but the foundation of Jesus and Jesus alone. The wisest people in God's eyes are not the ones who have the biggest influence, but it's the ones who carry the most oil of his presence. The story of the virgins, the six wise and the six foolish. He didn't say the six wise were the ones who had the most monetary value to their name or the ones who had the most influence, but they had the most oil. What is oil? It is worship. It is praise. It is prayer oil. Babel was the birthplace of the influencer spirit. It's humanity to seeking to build a name for themselves without God, saying, we will. So I want, I want you to hear me. We need fire-filled influencers on the world, in the world today. My God, more than ever, we need fire-filled influencers in business, in media, in Hollywood, in all these areas. I'm not saying separate everything. I'm saying go invade that place with Jesus. But I'm saying the moment that we separate influence from the person of Jesus, it becomes emptiness. The moment... I take influence and separate it from Jesus. I don't have influence. I have internal emptiness. Only Jesus can satisfy that depth of our soul. It's Jesus. It's Jesus alone. That's it. Come on. 
It's him. It's, it's, it's his kingdom. He, the kingdom of God, it's beautiful. It's not a democracy. We didn't vote him in and we can't vote him out. It's a kingdom. The moment you take the king from the kingdom, you get dumb. Stupid joke. <laughs> Jesus is the king. Mary and Martha, I spoke on it a couple months ago, but you know, I said, Martha really knew how to get Jesus in the house, but Mary knew what it took to keep him there. Martha was interested in a visitation, but Mary was interested in habitation. And aren't you so thankful that the Lord is raising up houses all over the country like this who are not interested in a visit, but are interested in, Lord, come inhabit and live with us. Dwell with us here. We can't do this without you. Martha and Mary. Martha was really busy serving Jesus a meal. But Mary discovered that Jesus was her meal. Yeah. He was the bread of life. Man cannot live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. There's a, a sermon Jesus preached in the Gospels where he has thousands of people in a field preaching this sermon. Many would call this very popular and influential. However, the moment Jesus started talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, everybody left. In heaven's eyes, he was still popular. But everyone left. Everyone left except the 12, his disciples. And guess what? Jesus didn't go try to track the, the crowd down and say, oh, no, here's what I really meant by that. I meant that's a metaphor of my blood and my flesh. But he said, I want those who know that it's not necessarily the content of my words, but it's the sound of my voice that keeps him there. And he looked to the 12 and said, are you guys going to leave too? And they looked and said, Lord, where else will we go? You have the bread of eternal life. I guarantee you, Peter had no idea what Jesus was talking about when he was saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. But his lovers aren't so much in love with the exact content coming from their bride's mouth, but it's just the mere sound of her voice that moves them. He's looking for lovers who are addicted just to the mere sound of his voice. God is not raising up employees in this hour. He's raising up holy field lovers who just want his voice. I uh, recently read this book by this lady. Her name was Madame Basilia Schlick. It's a German name, I think. But she was a nun, in, a fire-filled nun, actually, in the 1970s. And Jesus approached her one day and said, I want you to give me a day. Can you just give me one day out of your entire life? Eliminate everything on your schedule. Just give me a day. And she did. After that day, he said, can I have a week? She said, okay, Lord, I think I can give you a week. She gave him a week. Just being with Jesus alone, locked up, praying. And then he said, can you give me a year? And she said, Lord... I have a sisterhood to run. I love how we can sometimes think we're informing Jesus of things he doesn't already know. But she said, Lord, I will. I'll give you a year. And he gently said to her, all I wanted was your yes. Go and live your life. And in that year, she wrote this book called My All for Him that completely wrecked me to my core last month when I read it. And 
when the famous youth preacher of his day, David Wilkerson, came and met Madame Basilea Schlick. I love David Wilkerson. My gosh, how many of you remember his, his teaching? Just a fire-filled man. That was really in his heyday as a young preacher. The minute he met this tiny, old, frail nun, he shook and trembled and fell on his face because of the power of God that was radiating from her. See, the Lord knows how to get us young preachers sometimes to humble ourselves just by exposing us to the glory of his presence. He is that good. He is that beautiful. Can I have a year? Yes. He is that good. He is that worthy. He is that beautiful. Let's go ahead and turn to read Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. So this is a a continuation, really, of what happened in the throne room. Verse 11. It says, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, lament for the king of Tyre. The king of Tyre is another word for the devil, for Lucifer. So lament for him. And say this, you are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You are in Eden, the garden of God. Every kind of precious stone covered you, carnelian, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald. Your mountings and settings were crafted in gold. They were prepared on the day you were created. You were an anointed guardian, cherub, for I had appointed you. So in other words, these jewels, we talked about this in the throne room. He's referencing the throne room that he lived. This angel, Lucifer, lived in the throne room. He had a front row seat covered with emerald, covered with jewels. He was a cherubim. He, he, he did all these things in the throne room. He knows the throne room. He knows worship. You are an appointed cherub. You are on the holy mountain of God. From the day you were created, you are blameless in all your ways. So picture this. So Jesus, before he came to the earth, he was still in heaven. So the triune being of Father, Son, and Spirit were always in heaven even before Jesus came to the earth. So the devil, Lucifer, the angel, spent eternity, billions of years in the throne room, covered with these jewels, ministering to God the Father, ministering to God the Son, and ministering to God the Holy Spirit. He spent billions of years doing this until wickedness was found in you. Through the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I expelled you in disgrace from the mountain of God and banished you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud because of your beauty. For the sake of your splendor, you corrupted your wisdom, so I threw you down to earth. Many scholars call Lucifer heaven's worship leader at the time. And many scholars read this and they propose that the inner construct of Lucifer, he didn't just have regular organs like angels, but his inner construct was itself music, instruments. So he did not necessarily have to play an instrument. He just had to merely breathe 
and worship would flow from him. His inner construct was instruments. Heaven's worship leader. How did he fall? Verse 16. Through the abundance of your trade. And another translation says, through the abundance of commerce. What was his trade? His trade was worship. So how did the snake fall from heaven and get to the garden? In other words, he made merchandise of what was holy through self-promotion. In other words, he merchandised his heart. I'm not saying he merchandised external worship CDs. That's not at all what he's saying, but it's the X, it's the internal merchandise of the heart. It's I will ascend. I will. It's, it's me. It's a me-centered gospel. It was the merchandising of himself. His heart became proud. He, in other words, I can put it, he approached the throne room for self-promotion. He approached the throne and made merchandise of what is holy. And this really reminds me of King David when he wanted the ark to come back to the center of culture, the center of society. He sent some people out to go get it, and they put it on a man-made, manufactured cart. They set the holy of holies on a man-made cart and began exerting their own striving upon the holy of holies. And a man got struck and died at that moment. I know it's intense. But David inquired, and he realized, oh, the ark it refuses to be pushed by a man-made object, but it must rest on a sh- the shoulders of friends. It must rest. The presence refuses to be manhandled. You cannot manufacture presence. You can't manufacture a river. You can only join a river. The Holy Spirit is our river. He's looking for friends. He's looking to rest on us. He's looking to rest upon us. It requires friendship. It's really so simple. This this whole thing is about him. It's that simple. Simplicity is the front door to a life of intimacy. And the devil, I believe, if he can't make me bad, he will just attempt to make me busy. If he can't get me to be a Judas, he will settle with me being a Martha. He does not want me to have a simple life. The longer we walk with Jesus, the more simple our affection and devotion should be. And there's always cares of the world that try to attempt to cloud our hearts, but the, the constant fight every day for spiritual warfare is this. Who will you put your affection on? Jesus, he's the one. The Lord has many singers, but few worshipers. He has many pastors, but few lovers all over the world. He has many missionaries, but few friends. He's looking for friendship, for co-laborers. So number two, it'll get better, I promise. (laughs) How Jesus won. How Jesus won. So we talked about how he fell. Now we're going to do a time jump to the moment Jesus becomes on the earth. Think about this. The devil who worshiped the lamb for billions and billions of years now sees 
the one he worshiped on earth in a body, he recognizes the throne room better than most of us because he lived there. So he recognizes the son of man is here. He is on the earth. The one I worshiped for billions of years is here in the flesh. Something's got to be up. Something's got to be going on. He knew the throne room better than anybody. He knew something was going on. And that's why when Jesus cast out a demon from a man, the demon fell out and said, Jesus, son of man, why are you here? I don't believe the demon was asking, what are you doing in this specific situation? But he was asking, what are you doing here on earth? We worshiped you for billions of years. Why are you on earth? Have you come to torment us? They were trying to figure out why was Jesus here? And pretty soon, hell devised a plan to kill Jesus, which wasn't a good plan because that ended up being his own death. The sword that he used really to kill Jesus was the very sword Jesus used to kill him. And that's any time that we're in spiritual warfare. So we recognized something's going on. And so before the cross, before the devil planned the cross, I believe his plan was to get Jesus to fall into temptation in the wilderness. Remember, he asked him, jump off this mountain. He was trying to get him to kill himself. This is, this is the demonic language that he was trying to do to get rid of him from the face of the earth. So the final temptation, really, he took Jesus back to where it all began in the throne room. And he said, if you will just for a second give me what I spent billions of years giving you, all of the nations of the earth will be yours. He wanted a second of Jesus' worship. I want to tell you that spiritual warfare always comes down to worship. Like I said at the beginning, it's, it's who will you put your affection in? Who will you put your trust in? He was saying, give me a second, just a second of your worship because I spent billions of years of giving that to you. He was desperate for it. That's why our worship is so powerful because darkness is so desperate for our attention. He attempted to make Jesus fail. And notice he tempted him with the nations of the earth. The question is, were the nations of the earth the devils? I would say yes, because Adam gave these to the devil. He stole them from Adam in a garden. And so he's tempting Jesus. If you want these back, worship me for a second. He was tempting him with a narrow gate. So he tempted him for free with something he was already set up to inherit through the cross. It's the narrow and the wide gate. Jesus, it's already promised he will have the nations as his inheritance. When will this happen? It'll happen in Revelation when he will join everyone else on the earth with his victory of ruling the nations. He was tempting him to get something for free that he was already set up to inherit as a son. He was willing to give it all away for a second of worship. This is why what happens in Revelation 19 and 20 is so radical because Jesus will get the nations. He refused to bow to the devil in isolation in the desert so he could get his reward in a new city with his bride. We get to join in on this inheritance in Revelation. 
Because Jesus entered through the narrow gate. And that same invitation is for us today, every day. Will you go through the narrow gate or the wide gate? The wide gate is easy, it's broad, but the narrow gate, that's the gate of difficulty, of keeping your affections on him. So how did Jesus win in the wilderness? He chose presence over distraction. See, the enemy will always put two trees in the garden of our hearts. Notice the Garden of Eden. It didn't just have one tree. It had two trees. It had the Garden of the, of the Tree of Life and the, gar- the Tree of the Knowledge of Good and Evil. I'm getting my words mixed up. But the Lord did not make us as robots because if he programmed us to love him, then love would not be genuine. But because he puts two trees in the garden of our hearts, love is that much more powerful because we get to wake up every day and choose him, to choose to love him, to choose to worship him. Jesus chose the correct tree where Adam chose the wrong tree. What Jesus, or what Adam lost in a desert, Jesus, or what Adam lost in a garden, Jesus gained in a desert. Lastly, I want to end here. I could get keys to come up. The final fall. (laughs) The final fall. So we got through the heavy stuff. Who's ready for some victory now? Let's go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. It says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So here we get four names that personify how the devil attacks us. He calls him the dragon, which denotes his cruelty that Jesus will wipe off the face of the earth forever. He calls him the serpent of old. This refers to the liar he is in the Garden of Eden. But the one true king who is Jesus and the personification of truth will destroy the father of lives for eternity. The next name is the devil which means the accuser that will be shut up once and for all through the blood of Jesus that shouts louder than any accusation that can be thrown at us. The blood of Jesus speaks a better name. It speaks a louder name. If you want to make hell mad, just start singing about the blood. If you want to win, if you're fighting spiritual warfare, talk about the blood. It's dangerous. I try my best to take communion every day over my mind, my heart, my home. And when I get to the juice, see, Scripture doesn't say that this symbolizes his blood, but it says it is his blood. So when we are taking communion, it's not just this routine, symbolic act that we do once a month, but it is a prophetic act proclaiming to hell that Jesus won and you are dismantled. That's the blood of Jesus. Refers to him as Satan, which means the adversary who attacks us. And he will be rendered absolutely powerless by being thrown into the lake of fire forever. So verse four, when I saw the thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge, I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus. So this is beautiful because John is seeing martyrs. How does he know they're martyrs? 
I believe he recognizes some of his good friends. I've been reading this book recently that talks about how each of the disciples ended up dying and their brutal, brutal deaths. And um, Peter's death is very interesting. So Peter was living in a town in Rome and Rome started to be burned down. They were persecuting Christians. There was a state-sponsored persecutions of, of Christians instituted by King Nero at the time. And all these Christians were dying and being burned up and Peter got on a horse and fled. He jetted out of there. And as he left the city, account says that Jesus himself appeared to Peter. And he looked at him and said, where are you going? Now's the time to face your end, which was fulfilling the prophecy of what Jesus told Peter when he said, one day someone's gonna lead you to a place where you're not gonna wanna go. So John is seeing these martyrs who he recognizes being exalted and lifted up finally a moment of justification. Jesus, the great restorer, restoring those who stood in their faith and got crucified for their faith. It's beautiful. So this is the 1,000 year reign now that Jesus institutes, which many have heard the millennial reign. This will be a time when the kingdom of God is not hidden anymore in the spirit, but it will be openly displayed for every eye to see, affecting every sphere of life. This result will be a 1,000 year period of unprecedented blessing for the earth as Jesus establishes his righteousness and prosperity and he restores everything. Many people are really, there's arguments on whether this is a real a thousand years or if this is just metaphorical. I'm at the point where I'm just like, I don't care. We win in the end and Jesus reigns. But uh, I personally believe, this is my personal opinion that this is a real 1000 year period. I believe if the Bible says it, the Bible means it. So Jesus restores everything in a moment. It's beautiful. And I wanna, say Jesus as restorer. The Lord has a beautiful way of taking our lives whenever we walk through pain or brokenness or sickness or anything that we can come across in this world that causes irritation. He has a way of taking that and making it better than it was before it got broken. What is better than a perfected garden of Eden? A perfected city that goes and goes and goes and never ends. This is Jesus. Romans 8, 28 says that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. So if it is not good yet, it's not the end. We are awaiting this beautiful, beautiful day of victory. I'm gonna read in verse seven. When the thousand years are completed. So when the millennial is completed, this is very interesting. Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. So this is interesting, because I'm thinking, why? <laughs> Once evil is shut up, why is he gonna be released back? I ask that question a lot. So I have, I've been really pondering this, but I, I found Mike Bickle's opinion, and it, I really wanted to release it today because I think it really resounds. So the millennium, 
was a perfect environment. Yet after Satan's release, some in the nations will still choose to rebel against Jesus with great hostility. One reason Jesus will allow Satan back into the perfect garden as he was in Genesis is because he wants the truth about the depravity of sin and pride and its incurable nature to be seen by all at this time. At that time, no one will be able to blame their sin on their difficult circumstances because they will have been living in the ideal environment of the millennium. So Satan will be released back and he will not be more humble at all when he's released back. He's not gonna be rehabilitated or anything. He's gonna be more angry than, than ever. He's gonna have more vengeance than ever. But it's important to know that when the a thousand year millennial comes, there will be people who will be ushered into this this era who did not accept Jesus nor took the mark. They didn't take the mark, they didn't bow, they didn't worship the, the Antichrist, they'll be ushered in. So the real test for releasing Satan back is will you still choose Jesus? We cho chose Jesus, will these others who didn't choose, will you choose him? <laughs> Love is a choice. Unbelievers who didn't worship the, the beast and the take the mark, he's, he's testing them. So he's testing those. We will not be tested because we already passed the test with our yes. Here's the good part. Everybody ready? Revelation, I'm gonna read in verse, verse nine. They came up over the surface of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. This is the city of Jerusalem. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Evil itself will be cast away forever and ever. The end. There's no and, there's no oh is he, no, the end. The end forever and ever. There's still Two more chapters and it's beautiful chapters that I'm sure Pastor David will teach on, but that's the end of evil forever. Pain, sickness, torment will be cast away. Death itself will be cast away. There will be a glorious day where we will worship Jesus without any hindrance of pain, torment, and sickness. In Psalms, it says something beautiful. We, we say this scripture a lot here, but it says, we enter his gates through thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise. Picture this, we enter gates. What are gates in heaven made of? We all heard pearls, the pearly gates. Enter his gates, the pearly gates with thanksgiving. How are pearls formed? Pearls are formed through irritation. On that side of eternity, we're not gonna have irritation. We're gonna be able to worship him freely with no hindrances, no sickness, no pain. However, on this side of eternity, we have irritation. So anytime the irritation of life is coming at me, whether it's spiritual warfare, demonic oppression, sickness, pain, death, loss, betrayal, anytime that's coming at me, I take it and I say, Jesus, I have an opportunity right now to give you a costly praise that I'll never be able to give you on that side of eternity. 
So I began thanking him. Thank you, Lord, through this irritation, through this, and I began praising him. And irritation is rubbing against my thanksgiving, and it's creating gates over my life filled with pearls from heaven. This is why worship on this side of eternity is that powerful, because we have an opportunity to give him worship, praise, and thanksgiving here that we'll never be able to give him on this side of eternity. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. The quickest way out of the valley of shadows is through praise and thanksgiving. Gates in heaven are made out of pearls. Pearls are formed through irritation. Praising through that irritation of warfare births new gates of heaven over our lives on this side of eternity. It's breakthrough. So I want us to take a moment. Can we just stand to our feet? let's just take a moment and close our eyes. I know this was, uh, it was heavy, but it ended up on a high note. But let's go ahead and close our eyes. And I want us to take a moment and respond. I, I truly felt that there's many in here with spiritual warfare, with uh, pain even that happened years ago, decades ago, that is coming to the surface. And I want us to take a moment and embrace that irritation, embrace that pain. And worship team, you can go ahead and come up and I want us to lift our hands right now. And I want us to take an opportunity and sober our minds to the reality that we will never have an opportunity in eternity to give him the type of praise we can give him now in this moment that you're sitting here right now. There is a moment that we can give him something costly. We won't be able to give him something costly in heaven because we'll have everything perfected there. But here on this side of eternity, we can form pearls. So let's begin to allow the irritation of life to rub up against our thanksgiving and our praise and let pearls and gates be opened up all over this room right now. Let's begin opening up our mouths and begin declaring who Jesus is. Lord, we declare who you are this morning, that you are the the true bright and morning star. You are the one who is coming, who has come, who will come back and get us again. So Jesus, we bless you this morning. Oh, we silence the voice of hell with our adoration. Lord, we look to you and you alone. And let's take a few moments and let's just respond with costly praise, with costly worship, with costly thanksgiving. Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.